You're listening to West Virginia Week, a regular podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting that summarizes the top stories of the week. Coming up, we'll hear about the latest U.S. Census and what it means for West Virginia's population. And a big shift is coming in how the country gets its electricity and the Pope's formal approval that allows priests to bless same-sex couples. We'll also hear about how students can benefit from mental and physical activities over the holidays and new research that aims to help air traffic control become safer and more reliable. And get ready for a ride-along on the West Virginia Christmas train at Cass State Park. I'm your host this week, Caroline McGregor. Let's jump right in with a few short news stories. A state trooper shot in a deadly Martinsburg confrontation last Sunday lost part of his leg. Randy Yohe reports. After taking four gunshots, including two in the leg, West Virginia State Police Trooper Abe Bean's left leg was amputated above the knee on Monday. Trooper Caden Spessert, who was shot once in the Sunday night incident, has been released from the hospital. Bean and Spessert went to Tobias Ganey's residence Sunday night to serve an arrest warrant on a battery charge. State Police Major James Mitchell says Ganey refused to come out of his home, and when troopers went in, he opened fire. The troopers returned fire and killed Ganey. Dozens of West Virginia troopers and state police from Virginia have been at the Fairfax, Virginia Hospital to show support. Mitchell said State Police Superintendent Colonel Jack Chambers visited Bean on Monday. There was also a prayer service led by state police current and former chaplains. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie. This week, Pope Francis announced that he formally approves allowing priests to bless same-sex couples as long as they are not for marriage or a blessing of communion. Brianna Heaney has the story. The announcement comes as there are growing tensions between some conservative U.S. Catholics and the Pope. However, Mark Brennan, the Diocese of Wheeling Charleston's bishop, says this is not a radical change for the church. And this is something that parishes in West Virginia are doing and will continue to do. So the change, I guess the change is becoming, is widening the scope of, of uh, in our consciousness of who can receive blessings. But all the way along, I think people uh, have received blessings, whether they were any, any kind of, whatever union they were in, uh, heterosexual or homosexual. Brennan says the document also reaffirms that homosexuality is a sin and that same-sex marriage is not supported by the Catholic Church. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston. Federal funds will help fix flood damage in Kanawha County's Coonskin Park. Chris Schultz has the story. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Federal Emergency Management Agency has awarded more than $1 million for the project. The money will help address damages to the Elk River Road and its embankment at Coonskin Park. Portions of the park were originally damaged by flooding in 2016. Another flood in 2021 impacted similar areas. Repairs to Big Bend Golf Course in Tornado will also be funded. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. The latest U.S. Census data has both good and bad news for West Virginia. Curtis Tate has more. According to census data released this week, West Virginia has narrowed its population loss of recent years and actually gained residents. The state added about 4,700 residents in the year that ended July 1, 2023, but that was offset by the number of people who died in those 12 months. More than 8,600 people died than were born, leaving the state with a net loss of almost 4,000. 
That's not good, says Brad Humphreys, an economics professor at West Virginia University. There are a ton of economic implications for that. I mean, we've got a very unhealthy and aging population in the state. Those people place a lot more economic pressure on publicly provided services than young, healthy people. While it is true that the most out-migration took place in higher-tax states such as California and New York, Humphrey says other factors drive people to move, including weather and housing affordability. I don't think there's much evidence supporting the fact that uh, the idea that, that state taxes drive migration decisions. When you subtract the in-migration, West Virginia had the worst natural change in its population, births minus deaths, than any state but Pennsylvania. The census also shows that West Virginia has lost a total of 23,642 people since 2020, almost the population of Wheeling. You can't outlaw death, right? That's not easily addressable by by any sort of policy. Humphrey says county level data that will be available in the spring should show where in the state the population loss and growth is occurring. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. You're listening to West Virginia Week. And now, some of our top feature stories from the past week. The holidays are an important time for everyone to rest and relax. But as Chris Schultz reports, students off from school can still benefit from mental and physical activities. Everyone, even kids, need a break, and the winter holidays provide the perfect respite in the academic year. But experts say just a little bit of activity during the downtime can go a long way to starting the new year off right. Carrie Gabbert is a public health evaluation and training specialist for West Virginia University Extension's Family Nutrition Program. She says daily activity not only has physical benefits for kids, but mental and emotional benefits as well. Kids who meet the daily requirements for physical activity um, have improved memory and concentration. They have a better sleep pattern, and they also um, experience benefits to their mental and emotional health, like reduced anxiety and depression. Gabbard says the daily recommendation for kids aged 6 to 17 is 60 minutes of physical activity. But whereas the advice used to be that activity should be done in increments of at least 10 minutes, she says now research shows being active for just two or three minutes at a time can contribute to the total 60 minutes. It's a great way for families to spend time together doing something that can be really fun. It doesn't have to be overly structured play. The best ways for family to be active can be something as simple as taking a walk together after dinner or putting some music on and dancing, you know, while you're preparing a meal. Families can use physical activity to strengthen their bond and enjoy their time together during the winter break. Gabbard says another way of looking at integrating active time is to break up those lazy winter days. Try to reduce the amount of time that kids are sedentary. So if they're sitting and playing a video game, they're having some other type of screen time, instead of allowing kids to sit and, and not move around for hours at a time, Set a timer for an hour and make sure they get up, move around, maybe walk up and down the stairs or do a few jumping jacks or even just walk a lap around the house. Any kind of movement to break up the sedentary time, that time counts towards that 60-minute recommendation, but it also helps get your blood flowing, clear your mind out, and it, it helps reduce some of the negative impacts that you can get from not being active. 
Students of all ages can also benefit from staying mentally active during the winter break. Jennifer Robertson Honecker is an associate professor at West Virginia University and the STEM specialist for WVU Extension. STEM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. Robertson Honecker was also formerly a high school teacher and says while the academic impact of the winter holiday break isn't as severe as the so-called summer slide, students can still lag come January. When they come back after the break, if they've done nothing with their brains or with their bodies, there's often this like type of lethargy that sort of get them going again. Robertson Honecker says STEM can be made fun, engaging, and age-appropriate through crafts and even everyday activities like baking or cooking. Think about what you're already doing with your family and how you could turn it into a learning moment. A lot of families love to make those salt dough ornaments. You know, there's a lot of chemistry in that that you can talk about of how it's forming. She encourages families to lean into holiday activities and their messier side. The more fun kids have with an activity, the more likely they are to remember and learn from it. It's really important to do it together as a family. Research shows that when you bring learning like that into the home, it's just so much more meaningful for kids, and it really it sticks with them um, and demonstrates you know, lifelong learning. Learning can be fun and something we, we just do throughout our lifetime. There are many resources online for at-home learning activities, including on the WVU Extension website. But Robertson Honecker says there shouldn't be an objective to get something perfect at the end of it. That low-stakes learning really shows that it can be fun and exciting and something you can do together. And you can turn any activity into a fun STEM uh, thing to do with your kids. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. As we approach the end of the year, Us and Them host Trey Kay has been reflecting on 2023 and a theme that's been consistent, trust or more importantly, our lack of trust in each other and our institutions. In the latest episode, we explore how that reality could shape the year to come and its social and political landscape. Here's an excerpt. In 2024, Mountain State residents will vote for more than 20 different government positions, from sheriff and prosecuting attorneys at the county level, all the way up to governor, U.S. senator, and the presidential race. However, we know from government surveys, trust in government officials is at a historic low. There's a lot at stake and a lot to lose. Ethan Zuckerman is a professor from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's spent years studying trends in civic and public life and has a book out called Mistrust. Why losing faith in institutions provides the tools to transform them. I was teaching at MIT from about 2011 to 2020, and I had a whole slew of students who were interested in trying to change the world for the better. Some of them were interested in reducing bias in AI. Some of them were interested in cryptocurrency. Some of them were interested in community participation. When I tried to figure out what they all had in common, almost none of them were interested in government service. Almost none of them were interested in going into existing institutions. And I started to realize that what I was seeing out of these incredibly smart young people was a massive distrust in institutions. And as I started researching it, I realized that it's actually a change over a, a, quite a long period of time. So. 
there have been polls of American confidence in institutions going back to the 1950s. Confidence in American institutions peaks around 1964. So quite a ways back. And if you asked Americans in 1964, do you trust the government in Washington to do the right thing all or most of the time? That's the formulation. 77% of Americans would say, yes, I trust the government in Washington to do the right thing all or most of the time. Whether you were a Democrat, Republican, whatever. That's right. If you ask that question now, you'll get about 15%, not 50, 1-5%. So fewer than one in five. So that's an enormous change. Now, the interesting thing about this was I assumed that this change was generational. I assumed that this change had something to do with the rise of the internet. I started looking back at the number, and actually this change happens around Watergate. It happens during the Vietnam War. It happens late in the Nixon presidency. America changes fundamentally in the 1970s. Zuckerman says we recover some confidence during Ronald Reagan's presidency. But the last time we see 50% of Americans saying they trust the government is during the George W. Bush administration in the early 2000s. That's an excerpt from the Us and Them end of year episode. You can download it now from any service where you get your podcasts, or you can also hear the episode on Thursday, December 28th at 8 p.m. by tuning into West Virginia Public Broadcasting. There will be an encore broadcast on Saturday, December 30th at 3 p.m. Us and Them is supported by the West Virginia Humanities Council, the CRC Foundation and the Daywood Foundation. West Virginia has its own version of the Polar Express. Brianna Heaney recently took a ride on the Christmas train at Cass State Park to see what this new offering is all about. Big white plumes of steam interlace with black torrents of smoke and sink down to the Greenbrier River hovering just above the surface. Inside, the train carts are decorated with garland and ornaments. Families come prepared to this event with bags full of goodies and thermoses filled with hot chocolate. Sing-alongs break out throughout the ride. Later, there will be a bake-off in town and then bingo night. All for the hundreds of weekend visitors to this little town that has a year-round population of 30 people. This is all part of an effort to keep Cass open later in the year and keep a steady flow of tourism through the town so that the history can be preserved. J.T. Arbogast has a long family heritage with this town. His great-grandfather owned the grocery store that rivaled the paper mill's company store. And he says his father wore out three cars driving to Charleston every week to lobby to have the town's history protected. He has been working to keep this town alive year-round. There wasn't anything past the fall, really. Once the leaves were done, the state shut things down. And so the, house, the houses and the town, was, it was pretty dark to come driving through here. The trains used to only be open for scenic rides in the summer and fall. 
But then, the president of the Durban and Greenbrier Valley Railroad Incorporated, John Smith, had the idea to start offering a Christmas train experience. And we thought, well, if we're going to be doing that, like, what, what's the way that we can create an experience for people who are coming into town? The town of Cass is an old lumbering town. Every home has the exact same build, and all the town buildings are painted white. There are three rows of identical homes, a community center, a barber shop the size of a shed, the rail station, and a large house on top of a hill where the mill owners lived. The town was founded in 1900. The first houses were built in 1901, and that's the road of houses that we're on now. That's Tammy Shoemaker. She grew up around Cass and now works as an information specialist for the Convention of Visitors Bureau at Snowshoe Mountain and Cass Scenic Railroad. She says the town was founded by the Virginia Pulp and Paper Company, which is now the multi-billion dollar paper company Mead West of Vaco. They chose to set up in Cass because they needed red spruce timber to make paper. Which grows several miles from Cass in small circles in some of the highest country in the state, around 4,500 feet in elevation. The red spruce was carted down by train and processed at the sawmill in Cass. The whole operation went on like this for around 50 years and created a bustling economy for the area. At its peak, the town had more than 2,000 residents. Yeah, <laughs> it was a busy town. And that's not counting the, the wood hicks that lived up on the mountain. The mountain men responsible for timbering the red spruce only came down to Cass every six months. They would cash their paychecks, head across the river, and party for a few days before heading back up the mountain. In 2018, Cass and the scenic railroads around it became a state park. Superintendent Marshall Markley says it takes a lot of work and collaboration to keep this park going. But he says there is nothing quite like it. Yeah, there's, there are other historical parks, but there's none quite like Cass. We're probably uh, the best example of a historic railroad logging town in its um, most complete version, you know. So we have uh, the railroad portion, of course, and uh, the company houses, and the company store, the depot, and all the supporting buildings, which in you know, a lot of company towns, um, only a few pieces of that survive. All this history and more is preserved, which Arborgas says is an uncommon fate for little towns like Cass. Cass was destined to become what so many of these towns become, which is a memory, right? Gone. But Cass remains through constant repairs to quickly built aging homes, special engineering of steam powered trains, and a group of people who keep finding creative ways to push this town forward. We're the only place in the country that has these three kinds of steam locomotives under steam and working. Um, that's worth celebrating. The fact that these buildings, these houses, the history that's here is still here, that's worth preserving and celebrating. And figuring out the ways in which you honor that history but carry it forward in a new way for another generation. Beginning in January, the oldest logging locomotive in the world will be running. There are other holiday-themed trains like a Halloween train during October, and through the summer and fall, there are scenic rides through the mountains. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Cass.
A Shepherd University professor is overseeing research to make aircraft communication more secure. The research was presented at the 63rd Annual Conference of the International Association for Computer Information Systems. It has also been published in several journals, subsequently attracting the attention of the country's national defence contractors. I sat down with Assistant Professor of Business Administration George Ray to talk about his cutting-edge research. Professor Ray, thank you for joining me. Your research focuses on making the skies more secure, not only in the interest of the general public, but also from a national security standpoint. Tell me what motivated this area of study. I was a uh, computer and communications officer in the United States Air Force for eight years. Quite a lot has changed. The ability uh, to use PCs to kind of collect data real time and uh, process it real time kind of got my interest, and that's when uh, I started working on it. You talk about the National Airspace System, a network of controlled and uncontrolled airspace, both domestic and international. The NAS essentially has an enormous responsibility of managing air traffic. What role does cybersecurity play in the national airspace? Shepherd University has a uh, National Airspace Cybersecurity Laboratory, and uh, we consider the national airspace to be part of the national cyber infrastructure because the avionics that are used in air traffic management transmit digitally encoded messages over a data link service. We're focusing on collecting right now the communications in the airspace transmitted by surveillance radars, transmitted by aircraft, by GPS satellites. So we have a data-driven approach to analyzing the national airspace. You commented that most people do not consider the airspace as a cyber system that is vulnerable to hacking attacks. What do you mean by this? They realize that it, the national airspace is vulnerable to attacks, but it's not considered part of the cyber infrastructure. That's what we're saying is we look at this as being part of the cyber infrastructure. You know, most of the uh, investment dollars from the National Science Foundation are going into is protecting things like power stations and data communication networks that we would use for finance and so on. And it is a cyber infrastructure. What are some of the different techniques used by hackers to attack the network? For example, the replay attack. The replay attack is an attack where a hacker will record messages at one time and then replay them at a later time. So like in the national airspace system, they might record avionic traffic, ADSB, this automated dependent surveillance broadcast. And that's where the aircraft gives its state information, its position, its heading, its velocity. So you might have an aircraft look like it's heading into a collision with another aircraft. And it's a, a form of spoofing attack where the hacker is pretending to be a legitimate node in the network. And in fact, they're there to cause uh, confusion. What level of interest are you finding on the national level for your research? We've had interest from defense contractors and uh, they work on the national level. And, you know, uh, just there was a headline in the New York Post, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago about GPS hacking. And, uh, you know, the New York Post headline was uh, hackers are attacking the GPS and experts don't know what to do about it. So we're looking at things like that as well. And 
some of the uh, research we're doing is we're looking at taking uh, radio frequency signals and then uh, decomposing them into their um, in phase and quadrature components, and then analyzing patterns in those to detect maybe if we have GPS spoofing or even ADSB spoofing going on. Tell me more about other specific cyber attacks or hacking incidents. Well, there's a couple of them. Let's start. Eavesdropping is one. Another is jamming, and that's where you have a denial of service attack where at a particular frequency, like for example, ADSB transmits at 1090 megahertz, you broadcast a powerful transmission at that frequency and it jams the communications. It, it, nothing gets through. And then spoofing, uh, again, is where you pretend to be a, a legitimate node on the network and the attack is where you create false position or other spatial information. How difficult is it for the Air Force, as well as commercial pilots, to respond to these incidents? The Air Force has a very good training program in this area, but um, you're dealing with sentient uh, opponents, people who are uh, able to see what you're doing and then counter that. Uh, we're seeing a lot of this in the Ukrainian war. You know, systems are effective for a while, but then countermeasures come into play and they lose their effectiveness. It's a definitely an ongoing competition. So this includes attacks on satellite systems and capabilities. What other areas are prone to attack? That's correct. GPS is a satellite system, and it's part of the GNSS, where there's several other countries that have put up systems very similar to GPS. And all of these systems are very uh, vital for transmitting information, so they're all vulnerable to uh, hacking attacks. And all of them transmit on certain frequencies that can be jammed. With the addition of drones using the country's airspace, what are the risks for air traffic controllers already under intense pressure to provide communication support for pilots? There's another side of the national airspace system, and it's the commercial side, where we're not necessarily uh, worried about hackers attacking it, but just the uh, stable and effective operation of the system itself. Putting a lot of drones into the national airspace system is going to have a couple of problems. The main one is the air traffic controllers are already being overwhelmed. So one of the other things we're looking at at Shepherd University is we've built our own air traffic control system to see how we can apply artificial intelligence to help make the airspace more manageable by the air traffic controllers. We help with traffic congestion prediction, uh, traffic optimization, and also handling a lot of drone traffic coming in, unmanned aerial vehicles coming in. How big is your team that is working on this research, and where do you see this research heading in the future? Right now, we're a fairly small crew, but we're also connecting with the defense contractors. So we could expand that pretty dramatically uh, because they have uh, a great deal of funding. Right now at Shepherd University, we're building a uh, science DMZ, and this will enable us to share our data sets and coding with other researchers and access large government databases at NASA or DOD. We're making the steps we need to make sure we can get into this next level 
So we'll really increase the contributions we can make and therefore the staff we have working. That was Shepherd University Assistant Professor of Business Administration George Ray talking about his research to help make aircraft communication more secure. That's it for West Virginia Week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week. As always, you can see these stories and more at wvpublic.org. I'm Caroline McGregor.